So we've been talking about being neighbor focused. We're not done talking about being neighbor focused. And to be neighbor focused, we talk about that we have to be gospel driven. The gospel has to be first. That the first step is that we have to love and we have to understand the gospel. We have to have, as we talked about with Nicodemus, this personal encounter with the gospel, this personal encounter with the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And as we talked about that, that's step number one. Then last week I got to step number two. Do you guys remember? Was there a clear step number two? What was step number two? This is a trick question because there was no step number two. Remember Jesus? He doesn't have a succinct step-by-step method that he followed every time as he interacted with different people. He interacted in different ways. He always approached them with a little bit different strategy or a little bit different relationship. Depending on that person, it was based on the individual. If they were a religious, moral Pharisee, he approached them one way. If they were an outcast, lost sinner, he approached them a different way. But we talked about that he was always, 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 he was motivated by the gospel. He was motivated by the gospel as he had these relationships, as he interacted with people, as he had conversations. And the gospel was what he communicated. No matter who the person was, he always communicated the gospel. And being motivated by the gospel and communicating the gospel, he would bring the gospel to bear on this individual's life. He would somehow take this conversation or take this relationship and he would elevate it. It's like, what is the heart issue here with this individual? Let me somehow weave my way and find my way what, to, what it is that they're holding on to. What it is, is is their heart issue. And so we said if we defined his approach, it would be grace and truth. That Jesus Christ, as we talked about in the Gospel of John, it says he came full of grace and truth and he came giving grace and truth. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so as we've received that, then we're to go and we're to be sent out just as Jesus was sent out. And we're to go and we're to minister and we're to be neighbor-focused with grace and with truth. With both. Always both. The gospel would be our motivation. We would communicate the gospel. We bring the gospel to bear and we would do it in grace and in truth. But we talked about with the individual or with the person it depends on how we approach them with grace and truth. With the, with the religious, with the moral, with the included, with the respected, Jesus tends to prioritize the truth. He presses them with the truth, but He's also gracious with them. And then with the lost and with the outcast, He prioritizes this grace and this compassion for them, but He also includes the truth. He doesn't turn from one or the other. And we talked about how we like to be either one way or the other, and it's hard for us to be both. But that's the example that Jesus set for us. And we look at these encounters that he has in the Gospel of John. We've been looking at Nicodemus, and then next week we'll start to look at the woman at the well, the Samaritan. These were completely opposite individuals, completely on the opposite spectrums in their culture and their society. Nicodemus, as we talked about, he was the elite of the elite. He was a Pharisee. So out of the 600,000 Jews in Israel, he was of the 1%, the 6,000 that were a Pharisee. And then of those Pharisees, he was one of the 70 that was a ruler of the Pharisees. He was the 1% of the 1%. Based on everything in their culture, he had made it. And then next week, we'll look at the woman at the well. Based on everything in the culture, she was a woman. She was a Samaritan. She had a promiscuous past. She would come to the well in the middle of the day. She was everything that, that Nicodemus wasn't. And so we're looking now at how he interacts with Nicodemus in grace and truth. Next week, we'll go to the woman at the well, and how does he interact with her in grace and truth? And what's that look like, and how is it different? And so that's what we're considering.
So let me just review quickly with John where we started with Nicodemus, where we got to, and how we saw him begin to prioritize this pressing of the truth with Nicodemus. So I'll read chapter 3, verse 1 through 8. We'll read that together just to remind us. And as we move forward with verse 9, it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things, can do these signs that you do, unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Everyone must be born again to see the kingdom of God. And then everyone must experience a spiritual birth to be able to enter the kingdom of God. Those are the two things we walked away with last week. For Nicodemus, Jesus was saying, it doesn't matter your status, it doesn't matter your wealth, it doesn't matter your knowledge, it doesn't matter how well you follow the rules and how well you keep the law. He says, you've got to start over. Despite all those things, it's worthless. Despite all those things, start over. Go back to the beginning. As we talked about, and I share with you guys, stepping forward, stepping back, based on all these experiences you had, Jesus says, it doesn't matter. Go back to the beginning. You're all the same. And Nicodemus, you're no different. And then he says, everyone must have a spiritual birth to enter the kingdom of God. He has to be transformed. This transformation has to occur. And it's a spiritual transformation. Remember Nicodemus, he says, well, how can you go back in your mother's womb? He was so focused on the physical, he couldn't even understand what Jesus was talking about, this spiritual perspective that Jesus was sharing. And Jesus says, you've got to be born again. You have to have this spiritual birth. And he gave him that reference from Ezekiel. And he says, you need to have this thing from outside of yourself. You need to have life that comes from outside of yourself. You need a new spirit. You need a new heart. And that has to come from God. It can't come from you. You have to be transformed. It has to be God that does that. God has to cleanse us. God has to give us a new heart and that new spirit. And I told you guys, it's the difference between being transformed, but we tend to focus on conforming or reforming. But God wants us to be transformed. And I don't think that I necessarily explain that very well. And so I want to give you a better illustration because I've struggled with this and considered this this week. Like, I, I want to communicate this more accurately. And so the best way I can do that is when Nita and I, when we moved to California and we started visiting families, particularly out in Simi Valley when we first came into Cornerstone, everybody had fruit trees in their backyard. They have orange trees, they have lime trees, they have lemon trees. Like, we just couldn't believe that all these people, that you have, like, you just have fruit trees in your backyard. We've never been in a place where we have fruit trees in our backyard. And he's like, I want a fruit tree. And she, of course, being Mexican, she wants a limon tree. <laughs> I'm from Georgia. I said, well, I want a peach tree, okay? And so, if we were there and in that backyard and there was a lemon tree, and I said, no, 
She wants a lime tree or I want a peach tree. How are we going to get a peach tree? How are we going to get something completely different from what we're starting with? I said, well, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to that... What did I say it was? A lemon tree? I'm confused. It was a, Okay, let's say it's a lemon tree. I'm going to go to that lemon tree and I want to get peaches. Alright, I'm going to fertilize that lemon tree. I'm going to water that lemon tree. I'm going to make sure it gets just the right amount of sun. I'm going to go sing to that lemon tree and talk to the lemon tree. And what's going to happen with all that fertilizer and all that water and all that sunshine? I'm just going to get really big lemons. I wanted peaches and all I got was really big lemons. Okay, well that's not going to work. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to prune it back. I'm going to cut it back completely. And I'm going to let it grow up again from the ground up. I'm going to trim it and prune it. And what's going to happen when the season comes and I get fruit? I'm just going to get more lemons. I'm just going to have a bunch of lemons. I, I wanted peaches and all I got was a bunch of lemons. And so that's what conforming and that's what reforming is. Conforming is I'm going to work what I've got. I'm going to try and make it what I want it to look like. But I've still got more lemons. Or I'm going to trim it and prune it and cut back what I don't want to include. All I get is more lemons. God says you have to bring in a brand new root. You have to bring in something completely different. You can't start with the orange tree. You can't start with a lemon tree and get peaches. You have to bring in this new root and plant a new root. It has to take hold in our hearts. God has to give us that so that we can produce this different fruit. So that we can be transformed. We can't work it. We can't grow it. We can't do it ourselves. It has to be outside of us. That that fruit would come from a brand new root. And to hear that. To hear that we have to start over, to hear that we have to be transformed, it's not us, it's completely from outside of us, that's hard to digest, that's hard for the upright, that's hard for the elite to hear, that's hard for the moral, for the good, for the well-respected, for those people that think, well, I kind of do more good than I do bad, so therefore I'm a pretty good person, it's difficult to receive that, it's difficult to embrace that that I have nothing, that I have to stand completely in this work that God is doing in me, that I'm spiritually worthless and I have to start over. And so as we continue in this encounter, as we look at the rest of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, we'll see that he continues to press this truth. He continues to speak truth to Nicodemus. He continues to press in on his heart issue. He's told him to start over. He's told him you have to be born again. You have to be transformed. And now in verse 9, he really brings the gospel to bear in his life. We're going to see that this gospel truth that he brings, that it confronts Nicodemus' position. It confronts his status. And then it also it confirms Nicodemus' need. And then lastly, that it clarifies his belief. So it confronts his status, this gospel truth. It confirms his need and it clarifies his belief. So let me read the passages as a whole. I'll read it in English, and then Grace in Spanish, and then we'll walk through it. In verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 
For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to, con- to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. After all that, Nicodemus says, How can these things be? You've explained this to me. you said, I need to be born again. You say, I need to be transformed. He's like, how can this be? And those are the last words that we hear from Nicodemus. Jesus doesn't allow him to speak back. Jesus responds to him and Jesus just moves forward sharing this truth with him. And this is where Nicodemus says, he's like, I don't get it. I, I, I don't get what you're saying. He can't see past his religious, his elite, his law-keeping perspective. He's like, this is what I've been taught. This is what I've lived out. He's like, I know that my standing with God and my standing with others is based on how well I keep the law, based on my knowledge of the law, based on what I do. That's what, that's what defines my status with God and with others. And I just can't see past this. I just can't understand. I don't understand how these things can be. And so Jesus begins to confront him. He begins to confront his heart. And he goes right to his identity. And he questions his position. Look in verse 10. He says, Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? He's like, how can you be the teacher of Israel? How are you the top 1% of the top 1% that you know the Old Testament backwards and forwards, that you can recite it, that you're the teacher of the law, you're the teacher of things of God and spiritual things, and yet you don't get this. You don't get the very basic thing that I'm trying to communicate to you that had to be hard to take. Everything around Nicodemus' life was focused on his position and his knowledge and his living out of this law. And Jesus said, you're a teacher? You don't even understand these things. And so he attacks her. He questions his position. Then next he questions his teachability. Are you even capable of understanding this? Look at verse 11. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? He's telling Nicodemus, You've seen my works. You've heard my voice. You've watched God work, and yet you don't get it. You can't perceive what you can hear and what you can touch and what you can know, what you've experienced yourself. How am I going to teach you spiritual things? How am I going to show you what's unseen when you can't even get what's seen and what's experienced? How are you going to be receptive to godly things? And so I experienced this myself. Most recently with Emmanuel, you guys, a lot of you will come to me because you know I'm a therapist. Like, it hurts right here. Can you tell me what's wrong right here? I, I, I need you to assess what's going on. I need to have a consultation with you to get understanding of my situation. And so Emmanuel, the other what, a week and a half ago or so, came and I had heard he had a spider bite or we thought it was a spider bite. And I got to look at it. I came over. He was sitting at his table. And I, I looked at this, this little bump on his arm. And it's a little bit red around it. And I said, I think that's a spider bite. And Melanie's like, well, what should we do? 
was like, well, you could elevate it. That would be good because it's starting to swell up a little bit. You could ice it. You could probably take Benadryl and that would help if there's an allergic reaction. But what you should do also is take a marker and put a ring around the redness, a ring around where it's swollen, so you can watch and see if it changes, if it gets any worse. And if it gets worse, then you need to go and you need to go see a, a physician. You need to get medical, medical help. They need to intervene. And me, I was like, okay, yeah, uh -huh, all right, uh-huh, uh-huh, okay. And I knew that he was, uh, okay, I knew he wasn't really listening to me. He was hearing me because Melanie wanted him to consult me and ask what was actually wrong so she could know. And I had experienced this before with him. He had come home from Ultimate Frisbee one day when we lived in Chicago. He's like, Britta, I hurt my arm. It's really bad. He's like, I can't, I can't bend it. I can't extend it. I can't straighten it out. And I examine it and I look at it and I'm feeling it. I'm like, I look at the range of motion. It's starting to swell. I was like, Emmanuel, I think it's broken. And I tell him where exactly I think it's broken and what part of the bone it is. I'm like, but you need to get an x-ray. Oh, it's okay. It's okay. I'm fine. It's not that bad. It's really, it's not that bad. Two or three weeks later, it swelled more. It got blue. It got green. It got yellow. It was hurting him. He couldn't sleep. He finally went to the doctor. The doctor x-rayed it. And what was wrong with his arm? It was broken. After the spider bite, it got big, it got swollen, he had like a, a third elbow sticking out here. It finally got bad enough, he went to the doctor and what did the doctor say? It's a spider bite. What did the doctor say? You need to elevate, you need to ice it, you need to put a black marker around it to see if it gets worse. You could take Benadryl, that's going to help, but they also gave him an injection. And I won't tell you where the injection was. But the point is, I told Emmanuel these things that he couldn't see. This is what the potential is. This is what it's going to look like later. No, I think, I know you can't see it, but, but I think your arm's broken. I know you can't see it, but if this thing spreads, if this spider bite gets worse, it's going to be worse. It's going to be painful. You're going to be in a bad situation. He's like, okay, okay, okay. And it's like him coming to me and saying, could you explain the physiology of that to me? Could you explain the anatomy of the bone? I'm like, why am I going to share that with you when you won't even listen to my advice in the first place and tell you how to treat it and tell you what to do? Like, you won't listen to my assessment. Why am I going to explain more? But Emmanuel, just like us, we need to get to this point where it actually feels really, really bad, where it starts to hurt, where I know I'm a sinner, I know I have a sin issue, I know... I know these things. I know them in my head, but it doesn't feel that bad. But when we get to this point where we finally feel bad, where we finally are able to experience that, that's when we want to go to God. And that's when we want to seek His consultation. But Nicodemus wasn't ready. He's like, I feel pretty good. I mean, I'm the religious elite leader in Israel. I know the law. What are you telling me that I'm broken? What are you telling me that i got to start over? I don't feel a thing. I feel good. It's not that bad. Yeah, I know I'm a little... Pharisaical, but it's okay. It's not bad. And so Jesus begins to push in on him. He's like, you want more understanding so you can better follow the law, so you can have a better standing with God and with others. He's like, I'm not going to give it to you. You need to consider the truth. You need to think about this truth. And so what do you guys think about your standing with God? And what do you base your standing on God on? Is it... Do we base our standing on this? Or do we base our standing on how I feel? It's not too bad. I know I've got some issues, but they're not terrible. I can make it on my own. We can't see our position. We can't see how we stand outside of God enlightening us, outside of God showing us, outside of looking at God Himself. 
When we see God, then we can see ourselves more accurately. And when we see God, we can be overwhelmed with our need. We can be overwhelmed with our situation. What didn't feel so bad compared to God, it starts to look awful. It starts to look dreadful. It starts to look hopeless. And that's what Jesus does here in this situation. He brings this gospel truth to confront his position, make him question his position and how he stands before God. And then he uses the gospel to confirm his need. He's like, I'm going to show you your need. I've told you your position. You understand your position, but you don't feel your position. Now I'm going to confirm the actual need that you have. And look in verse t- uh, 13. He begins, to, he begins to describe God to him. He says, let me tell you about God's holiness. He says in verse 13, No one has ascended into heaven. God is holy. He's set apart. He's unattainable. You are unable to change your position spiritually. You can't approach Him. No one has ascended into heaven. You're trying so hard by your works and by your keeping this law to get closer and closer to God. No one's ever done it. No one will ever do it. God is completely separate. God is completely holy. Your knowledge, your moral behavior, what you do or don't do, it's not going to get you closer to God. You're helpless. You're hopeless. You're on your own. He is completely holy and we are completely sinful. That's the truth. But look as we finish verse 13. It says, except... So no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. This shows not God's place, but God's pursuit of us. So God is in this holy place, completely separate from us, and yet He has pursued us. He has descended from heaven to earth to walk amongst us. God pursued us, and that is amazing. And that's the exact opposite of what Nicodemus was doing. That's the exact opposite of what the Pharisees were doing. They were trying to work their way closer and closer to God. And God says, you can't ascend, but I'm going to descend. I'm going to come and be with you. He says, I'm going to pursue you. And that's the difference, as we talked about last week with religion or irreligiousness. The difference in religion and the gospel is that religion is pursuing God. The gospel is that God has pursued us. God has come. He has descended to us. We cannot ascend to God. We have to trust God to pursue us and and descend to us. That's the truth. That's God's pursuit. And then God does His part. So He has His place. God has His pursuit. And then God has His part. Look in verse 14. It says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. What in the world is he talking about? Anybody know? Who is he talking to? Nicodemus. What does Nicodemus know? Forwards and backwards, upside and down? The Old Testament. So what does he go to? Jesus says... As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Let me read to you the story that he was referring to. Starting in verse 5, it says, And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Verse 6, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and he said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that He take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. 
And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Look at verse 7. It says, The people came to Moses, and they said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. They realized that they had sinned. And they knew we're sin, we're in this situation. This is an imminent and a terrible situation. There are serpents among us. They're, they're, they're biting people. People are, have died. People are dying. And we're going to die. This is serious. I feel my need. And they say, God, you've got to do something. God, we have sinned against you. And then in the rest of verse 7, it says that he would take away the serpents from us. God, you've got to act. God, you've got to do something. God, we are helpless here. We cannot do anything about the situation. God, would you please act? And then look in verse 8, God's response. He says, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So God says... And what I want you to do is not, this is not how to prevent being bitten. He says, once the people have been bitten, once this serpent has bitten them and their venom is running through their veins and it's coursing through their body and they're starting to feel their lungs collapse and they're starting to feel that this is an imminent situation, I'm about to die, I have no hope left. He says, once they've been bitten, once they're in that situation, then tell them to look up. Then they'll look up at this serpent, this bronze serpent on a pole, and they'll be saved. Not before, but once they've been bitten, once they're experiencing that, then they'll be saved. He says, wait until they're 100% convinced that they have no other option. Wait until they're 100% convinced that they're serious, their condition is serious, their death is imminent. I need someone to intervene. I need someone to rescue me. I need a Savior. I can't do this myself. I am lost. I am dead. I am dying. I need someone to come and save me. And this is what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus. You don't believe that you need someone to save you. You don't believe that your death is imminent. You don't believe that you've been bitten by the serpent and that you are in the middle of dying and you are about to die and your death is imminent and you're going to be in hell for the rest of your life despite your religion, despite your morality, despite your wisdom, despite knowing the law. Because you don't need a Savior. He says, you've got to understand, I need a Savior. You just look at me at teacher, as teacher. Tell me something I can do, teacher. Tell me something more I can do to earn my way towards you. He says, no, I'm your Savior. And you've got to see me as Savior first. And you've got to see your situation as imminent. And the best example I could come up with is if we were in a pool, a large pool, and all we can do is tread water. We can't swim out. We can't swim to the side. we just got to continue to tread water. No one's around. No one can help us. We can't move out of the middle of the pool. We just continue to tread water. We could last a long time. Some of us longer than others. We just continue to tread, continue to tread, continue to swim. But we started to feel that need and our arms start to get tight and they start to get tired. Like, i got to figure something else out. I can't continue to tread on and on and on. And I started to think, well, what are ways, what are things that I can do? I bet I can lay on my back I can, I can come up with different ways where I can tread water and not use so much energy, where I can last longer. So I'm going to lay on my back, I'm going to turn to my side, I'll kick with my feet, then I'll kick with my arms, and I can last a little bit longer out of my own strength. And then I start doing that, and I get fatigued, I get tired, I, I know I'm not going to make it, I'm closer and closer to sinking. And then I look and I see Jesus standing outside the pool, outside this body of water. He's waiting, 
He's offered me. He's offered to be my Savior. He's offered to rescue me. And I say, you know what? Jesus, could you actually just teach me a few things? Could you tell me a few techniques so that I can keep myself afloat longer? I'd like to hear from your wisdom and hear from your knowledge. And I'm going to keep myself up. I'm not going to drown. I'll just keep doing it myself. But I'll, I'll take your wisdom. I'll take your teaching. And I'll try and apply it out here in the middle of this pool and keep myself from drowning. And then when finally that runs out, you say, you know what, Jesus? There's a life a life ring, a, a buoy, Will you, would you throw that out to me and then you can help me in. I, I, I've tried it myself, I've tried to follow your teaching, but now would you help me? Would you actually kind of, us together, let's save myself. Will you throw that to me? I'll start to paddle, you'll bring me in, we'll do this together. That won't work. And finally, we run out of energy. Finally, we pass out. Finally, we start to sink and we're drifting down towards the bottom. We pass out. We are helpless. We are hopeless. We are, we're as good as dead. And then Jesus jumps in. He dives down. He puts his arm around us and he brings us up. We are helpless and we are not contributing whatsoever. And he pulls us out and he saves us. And we have to get to that point where we realize we're not treading water. It's not that we're going to die. It's not that I need Jesus' help. It's not that I need his teaching. I need a savior. I am down at the bottom of the pool, passed out. Imminent death is imminent. And I need Jesus to come and I need him to save me. I don't need him to help me. I don't need Him to teach me. I need Him to save me. I need to be rescued. And that's where Jesus wants Nicodemus to be. That's where He wants us to be. I want you to see me as Savior. I am your Savior. You need me completely. You can't do it on your own. So in your guys' lives, do you need a Savior? Or do you tend to approach Him as teacher, as helper? He says, I want to rescue you. And it's not that Jesus saved you once and now you're safe. He continues to rescue you. He continues to enable you. He continues to give you strength. You still can do nothing on your own. You need Him completely. So that's God's place, His pursuit. That's God playing His part as Savior. And it's all for this purpose. Look at verse 16. The most famous verse in the Bible. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes is saved. Whoever believes is rescued. Whoever believes what? Whoever believes this gospel that he's sharing, whoever believes that God is holy, whoever believes that you are truly dead and dying and that you are helpless and hopeless and you need a Savior, that's who God saves. God saves those who need and understand they have to have a Savior. God came to save, but who did he come to save? He came to save sinners. If you're not a sinner, God isn't going to save you. If you don't understand that you're a sinner, God hasn't saved you. You're still trying to get out on your own. You're still trying to do it of your works and of your effort and by your power, by your wisdom, not His. You need to allow God to save you. So the gospel truth confronts our position. It confirms our need. And it clarifies our belief. If you look in verse 18 of chapter 3, back in John... It says, whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe 
is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Salvation or condemnation is based on belief only. Either the presence of belief or the absence of belief. Salvation is based on that. If you believe, then you are saved. If you haven't believed, then you're condemned already. It's very clear. Salvation is for those who believe. But what are we believing? We're believing Jesus Christ. We're believing the Gospel. I believe the person the work of Jesus Christ. I had actually come to a place where I believe that I have to start over. That I've come to a place where I believe I have to be transformed. It can't be of me. It has to be of God working in me. I, I need a Savior. That's what I believe. I need to be rescued. That's the belief that God says saves. That's the belief that leads to salvation. If we don't believe that, if I don't believe I have to start over, if I don't believe I have to be transformed, but I can be conformed or reformed, if I don't believe I need a Savior, but I can help save myself, I'm condemned already. We have to believe this. We have to believe this about the Gospel. Because what God is condemning here, what He's saying here, as it goes on in verse 19, He says, and this is the judgment, He's condemning moralism. He's condemning religiousness. He's condemning all these behaviors that we do to try and earn our way to God. He's condemning that. He's saying, you're going to be condemned if that's all you do. If you don't believe the Gospel. And He says, this is the judgment. Remember the context. Who's He talking to here? He's still talking to Nicodemus. When I have read this in the past and I heard these verses... And you start to think through this, like, I forget, he's talking to Nicodemus. He's talking to an elite of the elite, someone who has it, someone who has made it. And he says, this light came into the world. In verse 19, and people love the darkness rather than light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Confronted with the Gospel, confronted with Jesus Christ, the Pharisees hated the light. They wanted to run from the light. The light of the Gospel, it exposed who they were. It exposed their deeds. It exposed that their deeds were useless and that their works were futile. If they have to start over, if they have to be transformed, then what good are my works? What good is my standing that I thought I had because of my knowledge and my living out of this law? And that these things they were doing were actually contrary to God. They were evil. What the Pharisees were doing were evil works done in the darkness. They would prefer to be in the darkness than be exposed for what they truly are. When I've read that in the past, I'm thinking of these evil, outward people dirty and nasty and these outcast sinners oh they, they don't they're in the darkness and they don't want to bring their sin to the light Jesus is talking about the Pharisees he's talking about their moralism he's talking about their religiousness he's saying that's what's in the darkness that's what's evil that's what's contrary to the things of God that's what this passage says that's the context of it it's not what I thought it's not what I understood or what I had in my head he says the moral the respected the religious the educated those who outwardly look like they have it all together They're exposed by the Gospel. Their hearts are exposed. And that's why they hate the Gospel. They're confronted with the reality of who they are. If I'm confronted by the Gospel, I realize I am a lost sinner. That's who I am. It doesn't matter what I've done. It doesn't matter what I know. That's who I am. And so what would the light of the Gospel reveal in your life? What works do you hold on to and do you identify with instead of identifying with Jesus? 
What things in your life do you do and do you focus on and do you work for thinking I'm going to have a better standing with God because of this? And I'm not saying that God doesn't move us because here as we'll see that there are works done through God. But if you're relying on those works to feel better about your position with God, then you're approaching Him as teacher. You're not approaching Him as Savior. You're saying, God, you're the teacher. Tell me what to do. I'll try and do it and I'll do it the best I can. But you're going to fail Him. And you're going to fall short. And you're going to feel smaller and smaller and defeated and defeated because you're saying, God, you're my teacher. Instead of, God, you're my Savior. God wants us to see Him as Savior. He wants us to realize that we are helpless and hopeless and that He wants to save us. So that's the encounter with Nicodemus. He was motivated by the Gospel. Jesus communicated the Gospel. And Jesus brought the Gospel to bear in Nicodemus's life. He elevated the conversation. He dealt with Nicodemus' heart issues with where he was, with who he was. He confirmed his need. He confronted his position. And he clarifies, this is what you believe because of how you respond to the gospel. You don't believe the gospel. He prioritized pressing the truth. What about the grace? Is there grace in this? Did, would, would, did Jesus act in truth and grace? And I would say yes. He gives Nicodemus this passage. He gives him this truth. And he basically says, I want you to go and I want you to consider this. I'm going to give you this truth, this truth that you know, and I want you to go and I want you to think about it and I want you to consider it. And so did Nicodemus ever respond? Because Jesus never talked to him again. We see no record of an interaction with Jesus and Nicodemus after this. Jesus just pressed him with the truth, gave him this to go away with, and said, consider it. And we see later in John 7, when the Pharisees were attempting to arrest Jesus, Nicodemus is the one that stands up before them. He's still thinking, he's still considering what Jesus says. And in verse 50 it says, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, to the Sanhedrin, that he was a part of, he says, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? He's like, wait, wait, wait. We should consider this. We should think about this. This man has spoken to me. This man, he's given me this passage. I've been thinking about what does it mean that he's going to be lifted up? What does it mean that I can have life through him, that I need to be saved through him? Maybe we should consider his works and think through before we make this judgment. And then later, after Jesus is crucified, after Jesus has been raised up, and you've got to think that Nicodemus was there and that he witnessed this and he saw Jesus on the cross, and at that moment he's like, okay, I understand your truth. He said, you'd be raised up so that I can be saved. For all that look on him, they'll have eternal life. And I think Nicodemus got it because you see in chapter 19 that Nicodemus was there with one of his disciples and they buried Jesus together. And you say, what does that mean? That he was there and that he buried Jesus. Well, Nicodemus was rich. He probably paid for Jesus' burial. But more than that, this was woman's work. To wrap this dead body in cloth and in linen and to put it in the tomb and to help with that process, this was woman's work. And in this culture, a woman's status was not here, a woman's status was here. And here was Nicodemus, who was the elite of the elite, and he was at the end of, after Jesus had been crucified, after Jesus had died, he's there with his hands wrapping him, doing this woman's work. He says, 
Forget my position. Forget my status. I'm going to lower myself. I'm going to humble myself. This is the man that I'm following. This is the man that's going to save me. And I'm going to put myself in this position. He lowered himself to that place. And more than just that it was woman's work, that body would have been considered unclean. A Pharisee would have never, ever touched a dead body. It was ritually, that would have been unclean. It would have been this terrible thing for him to experience. He's like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter my status. It doesn't matter that I'm a Pharisee. He's like, I'm going to lower myself and I'm going to put my hands on this body and I'm going to respond. He had these works, as we see in verse 21, these works that have been carried out by God. Nicodemus was transformed. Jesus pressed him with the truth and then he gave him grace and time to consider it. And we see that over that time and over that experience and as Nicodemus thought about it, as Nicodemus watched the life of Jesus, he actually, the truth sunk in and he saw it for what it was. He saw himself for who he was and he responded because of what he believed. He was born again. And I believe that's the example for us. For us to be neighbor focused. When we're dealing with individuals who have got it together, who are religious, who are moral, who are respected, we're to confront them with the truth of the gospel, that they might understand their need. We're to confront them with truth, but we're to be gracious with them as we do it. Give them time to consider it. But here, this is the truth. You need to see who you are. You need to see the reality of your position. So I ask you guys, what do you believe? Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe that you are more dreadfully sinful than you ever dared imagine? And yet as we see here that God loved you so much that He sent His Son to die for you. That He loves you more than you could ever dream of. But you can't understand His love. You can't believe the gospel if you don't believe who you were, who you are, that you were more dreadfully sinful than you ever dared dream. You need a Savior. And so I ask you guys, let Jesus be our Savior. Let Him be everything for us. Let us confess that we need to be rescued. If you haven't done that, do that this morning. If you have done that, but you say, God, you need to repeat that every day. God, please rescue me. God, please do in me. God, please work in me. I'm not a student. You are not the teacher. You are my Savior, and I need to be rescued. That's how God wants us to approach Him. Father God, thank You for Your Word. Lord, I pray that it would transform our hearts, that Your Spirit would work in us. Lord, that You would show us who we are. Lord, what our standing is before You. Lord, that if we don't feel our need for You, Father, that You would make it very evident. Lord, that we would not be able to deny our need. That we need to be rescued, Father. I pray that You would rescue us. Lord, and I pray that our belief would show. Lord, that we would believe the Gospel and nothing else. Lord, and that we would respond, Lord, out of obedience and out of love and out of just an overwhelming joy, Lord, that we would joyfully receive You. Lord, that our works would be done in You and through You. So, Lord, show us what this looks like as we are neighbor-focused, as we interact, as we have conversations, as we build relationships. Lord, as we've considered Nicodemus, Lord, help us to apply this in our neighborhood, Lord, that we might press with the truth, but we might also be gracious, Father, and patient. 
Lord, help us to understand that. Help us to be able to elevate our relationships and our conversations and speak to and confront people's hearts with the gospel. Lord, we can't do that. You have to do that. So, Lord, please do that in us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.